I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello. Hi, guys. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And this is episode episode 48 it is episode 48 yes good guess i was like i know we're near 50 but we're not there yet i know we are very close to 50 and we're going to do something special and different for episode 50 yes we're going to be doing a QA episode which laura had like thrown at me last week during the intro if you listened and i was like yeah let's do it um I've posted a couple of times on our Instagram story asking for questions, but I think we'll post a couple more times this week. So take a look and submit your questions on our social media. Yes, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at a tap on the and wrist. And you can also email us questions or, you know, any, just say hi, whatever you want. Um, and our email address is tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And... We have a new president-elect, guys. I know. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. I just, I mean, I'm part of me now. So this is Sunday night after the announcement was made. And I'm just, I'm so excited. But I'm also like, that's 73 I days. Know. I'm like a little bit worried. That something could go. I'm a little worried. But I'm like, like I, I grew up... I was in Florida for the 2000 election. I very much recall the realness of Al Gore being named president. Oh, yeah. And then JK, Florida messed it up. I know. It's George Bush. I know. I'm hoping for the best. Sort of expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. Um, And I, I have to say that, like, yesterday, I felt like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders. Like, I just... I felt like happy and hopeful for the first time in a long time. So it was immediate relief, immediate Immediate. relief. And I got the news. I actually had turned the news off after like four days of binge watching. And it was actually Vanessa sent a text to our group that was like, CNN called it. I was like, oh my God. It's funny because I I, know it's funny because I, Found I, I was watching the news with my mom, and she was like, "Let's let's change the channel in a minute. Like, I can't watch this anymore. It's giving me too much anxiety." And like, literally, like the next second, they were like, "And we have an important update." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad yeah. we waited like that extra minute, or else <laughs> we wouldn't have heard it called." Um, but yes, I immediately texted Laura and a couple of our other friends because I was just so excited I know it felt like the longest four days and then you know I don't 
we're going to find out what this sounds like. We are actually not recording this intro in the same room. Um, our episode, as you guys know, we pre-record a few weeks ahead of time. And um, so our episode was recorded a couple weeks ago in the same room. But this week, I'm actually in quarantine um, because I was exposed to someone who tested positive for COVID. I do not have it. I've been tested now multiple times. Um, but so I couldn't even really enjoy yesterday. Like I just wanted to go out into like all of the parties that were happening around New York, but I, I like couldn't cause I'm supposed to be home and in quarantine. And I just felt like that was risking a little yeah. too much, but Laura and I, Laura's quarantine is up on Friday, so we're going to celebrate on Saturday. Yeah, but my roommate went out yesterday, and when she came home last night, I was like, you know, how was it? And she said that it was the best day of her life, which made me even more sad that I couldn't go out and celebrate with all of the New Yorkers who were dancing and screaming and all that jazz but I am very happy and hopeful and feel like I don't know just like more joy than I feel like I think the last four years really sucked a lot of the happy energy so I'm excited to like get some of that back me too (laughs) um and we did say that you would update them on how election day went for you and I know it's not a huge update, but we did say we would get to it. So I'll let you tell them what happened. Oh, working election day. So I volunteered to work the polls for election day. And basically it, they like give out assignments and in New York city, so many people applied that I was given a standby assignment and I was like, okay, fine. I'll go to this standby facility and see what happens. And so I showed up, you had to be there at 9am. Um, and then they kind of gave me a number and they sat me in this room with hundreds of other people. And I was like freaking out a little bit because of COVID I mean, everyone had their mask on, but we were literally in an enclosed gymnasium of hundreds of people. We were spaced out. No, I I get you. Whatever. So I'm sitting there in my chair and I'm like, oh, they're not doing anything. Like, how does this work? There was no explanation to the process. And I was number 396. So I was like, well, I don't know how many people are ahead of me, but I presume there's 395. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so, and there, I mean, the line was down the block behind me. There are like hundreds of people behind me. And so then a guy gets on a microphone and he just starts calling random numbers. Like it would be like 18, 174, 211, 91. I'm like, no order. And then you, those, those four people, five people would get up, they'd be given a sheet of paper and they'd be whisked away. Uh And that was it. That was the extent of it. And so I, I, we never were told. And so like the hours, you know, so it goes from like nine, now it's 11. 
And so I'm like, okay, but there are more people coming in and getting numbers and filling seats. So like, it's not getting emptier and emptier. And like, you know, that every, it felt like every number around my number was called. And then it's like two o'clock and I'm still sitting there and I'm like, what is like, this is crazy. Um, and then finally at like three 30, they came over the mic and they were like, at this time, we think we've given out all of the needed positions. Like, thank you so much for your service. You can go ahead and sign out. You'll get paid for the day and you can go home. And so at like, by the time my row got called and signed out and everything, it was like a little Mm -hmm. after four and I went home and while like it, it wasn't as long as working the polls, like it was a long, it wasn't as long as if I had been called to like go and work at the election Mm -hmm. day polls, but it was like a long day of just sitting and doing nothing. I mean, I read a book and I listened to some podcasts, but it was kind of disappointing. It honestly kind of reminds me of jury duty, where you like just go and sit in this big room and you wait for your number to be called, and if your number's not called, then you just sat there all day. I know, and like part of me wanted to be like, I don't want to get paid. Like I'm not one of the people that are here to get paid. I like legitimately want to yeah. do this. Can I volunteer? I know. Well, is is there anything like since you've already been through the training or whatever this year, is it easier for you? to volunteer again next year or would you have to like redo all the training and stuff no I think like for I know next year in New York City we have a big mayoral election and so I could potentially work the Mm -hmm. polls for that however we don't get off school Uh, for that day so I don't know that I can like schools in New York were closed for like the presidential election but we don't typically close Uh, okay for local elections so probably not it'll be like four years until Mm -hmm. i can do it again most likely but we'll see but yeah so it was a long day and i really wanted to do it for the experience and also to keep my head off of the election like i figured if i were busy working the polls and not home till 10 30 or so i wouldn't be so focused on the tv but instead I just um I just came home and watched Christmas movies that's legitimately what I did in the afternoon and it didn't matter anyway because we had stress for days afterwards Um, (laughs) yeah I know so but there was just something about election night and watching some of the numbers roll in election night was more stressful to me than like the three days after because you know Georgia went red and PA went red and you know you're sitting there on the edge of your seat Ohio might go blue it's gonna go blue it's gonna go blue no it's red and I was like oh my (laughs) god um and then obviously things changed out and they worked in the favor that I was hoping for but um election night was was stressful and it feels it feels great to be past it maybe but we, I know there's, like we said, there's still going to be some, uh, some stuff ahead. Yes. But you know what? Let's, let's not focus on that. Let's talk about this week's episode. Cause it's, um, it is. it's a good one. We're going to be talking about some of the alliances of the Chicago outfit. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just like my mom always said behind every great mobster, 
are other great mobsters. <laughs> is, that what, is that what your mama would say? <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is what my mom always said. Um, but yeah, we we're talking about some some pretty cool gangs that I hadn't heard of before, um, and some that I had. So hopefully, you guys will enjoy it just as much as we did. Yes, and again, follow us on social media. Check out we've got pictures of the gangs this week. We've got um, those question boxes on our story. Submit questions, anything you want to know. It can be podcast related. It can be like life related. It could just be like things you've always wondered about creating a podcast. Um, I think we're pretty open book kind of people. Obviously, we'll use our discretion uh, if you get crazy (laughs) personal. But uh, I don't know why you would want to know those things about (laughs) us anyways. But uh, (laughs) send some questions so that that episode is fun and interesting and I don't know. Here's two alliances. Enjoy. Okay, so the first ally that I'm going to be talking about is the Valley Gang. And I can't wait to tell you about their leaders. I was excited about this one. Okay, so the Valley Gang was an Irish street gang during the early 20th century, and they were based in a Chicago neighborhood called the Valley, unsurprisingly. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. And the Valley was located in Chicago's Bloody Maxwell section on 15th Street. In case you're wondering why it's called the Bloody Maxwell section, uh, like I was, it gains that nickname from the Chicago Tribune in 1906, unsurprisingly because of the area's violence. Um, it, it is called the Maxwell section, and they just tacked on bloody. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> um, and this, the valley was actually only separated from the levee by the Chicago River, so it was like the levee, Chicago River, another terrible district. <laughs> Or not terrible, just vice, vice written. I wonder what it was like to live in Chicago during this time. Like, are there, were there great positive sections like there are now? Like, there are really upscale sections of Chicago today. Right. Well, I know when I was reading about Colosimo at one point, it said that he went to the upscale loop area. So I feel like the loop was and still is like a nice area. Right? Is the loop like higher end? Is it? I don't know. I feel like it was. I don't know that I mean, much the about loop, Chicago. The, <laughs> I think, I mean, the loop is like the business district, right? It's like the loop that the subway or the the L yeah. goes around. And so I know it's where, like, a lot of, like, downtown Chicago mm-hmm. is, I think. But it's not where, like, the big skyscrapers are. I have no idea. I probably should know more about Chicago's layout by now, but I don't. All we keep reading about are the bad parts. <laughs> All I know, I, the loop is near Grant Park, which is like their big, big park. Is that where the bean is? Yes. Cool. Anyways, uh, <laughs> if you're from Chicago, we're sorry we are butchering the map of your city. <laughs> <laughs> Please feel free to correct us. Um, so the valley bordered Halstead Street to the west, 14th and 15th streets to the north and south and was again not the nicest area it was described i think in one source as like an irish ghetto so the the rivals to the gang the valley were the reagan's cults and i just am throwing that in there so you remember it for later okay okay so 
The valley was actually an outgrowth of another gang called the Henry Street Gang. And while I didn't find a ton of information about the Henry Street Gang, I did find one interesting tidbit that was on the People's Source. Okay. So I guess take it with a grain of salt if you don't trust the People's Source. So the Henry Gang was formed by a man named Chris Mary, like Merry Christmas, <laughs> uh, in the 1890s, and they specialized in armed robbery. In fact, they developed a method of robbery known as the kick-in. And this is how the kick-in would go. So Mary and six other gang members would pull up to a local store. One man would stay with the wagon because it was the 1890s. So they had a wagon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two lookouts would stay outside and Mary and the other gang members would kick in the entrance of the store, load up the wagon and drive off. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because that method would later be used by famous criminals like John Dillinger, who I know you were super fascinated by and so sad you couldn't tie him into the season. Well, I mean, I feel like the kicking, like, you see that all the time, like, yeah. kicking in a door. Yeah, but I guess, like, the format of having, like, someone with the car, two lookouts, the other ones, like, kicking in, going in, and that whole setup was originated by this gang, according to Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> Um, but back to their offshoot of the Valley Gang. They were originally known as pickpockets and armed robbers, which I feel like is kind of common place for gangs back in that day. I feel like all the gangs started that way. Uh, and before the 1920s, they were led by a man named Ammunition Eddie Weed, who got his nickname because he shot a lot of people. <laughs> um, he was hanged in February of 1918 after confessing to 20 robberies in 12 months including one at the Winslow Brother Ironworks where he killed two messengers with a shotgun. Okay. Next to take control of the gang was Patty the Bear Ryan. Um, he apparently got his nickname from his fighting style, but also I read that he like had a very large physique um, and that he didn't have brains to match. So I think that played into his nickname uh but during his running of the gang he hired them out for illegal activities such as labor slugging and murder for hire uh, but sadly his time running the gang was cut short when he was murdered at his south ha south halstead street saloon in june of 1920 uh, by a rival gangster named walter runt quinlan God, the nicknames of season two <laughs> i feel like we need to do a social media post of just Nicknames. Yeah, we probably should. Just like a list of all the nicknames we've had to say. Um, but but don't worry, because Quinlan was later murdered in revenge by Patty the Bear Ryan's son, Patty the Fox Ryan Jr. Oh. <laughs> bear had a fox. Yep. I'm surprised it wasn't Patty the Cub. Like, oh, just yeah. Go with the, the Just baby. go with the bear theme. Okay, so this brings us to the Valley Gang under the leadership of Terry Dr Druggen, or I'm going to say it's Druggen. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Uh, and his closest aide, Frankie Lake. And those two were described, every source I read was like, they were inseparable. They were inseparable. It just like kept, they were inseparable. Okay. Uh, so apparently Terry was rash and impulsive and made a lot of headlines while Frankie was like the calm one who got things done in the background, which reminds me a little bit of like Capone and Torrio. Like it seems like that setup works for people. Yeah. Um, so it was under their leadership that the gang began to concentrate on bootlegging and rum running and became known as the 
drug Dragon Lake gang, but also still the Valley gang. Um, I was a little confused about that, but I guess they went by both names. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so the two of them began to pull all their men off the streets and focus on alcohol distribution and breweries um, and move their headquarters to Little Bohemia Cafe on South Loomis. The Valley Gang began to extend their reach and not only controlled the Maxwell Police Districts, but also the Marquis Police. They also, as I mentioned, began buying up breweries and partnered with Joseph Stenson, buying major interest in five breweries from the Stenson family. Uh, the five breweries were the Steeg, or the Steg, the Standard, the Gambrinus, later called Illinois Beverage Company, the Hoffman, and Pfeiffer Products Company. The largest of the five seemed to be the Standard, which output 5,000 barrels of beer per day, or 1.8 million barrels a year. It was co-owned with several aldermen, state legislators, and a congressman. Oh, so, you know. It's very on board. Yeah, yeah. And combined with their other four breweries, the gang had a brewing capacity of over 3.5 million barrels a year. So they would sell, take this beer, sell it to customers like saloons at $55 a barrel, or they would sell it wholesale at $30 a barrel, or sell it wholesale at $30 a barrel to their allies like Torreon Capone, um, and likely to the Jenna brothers who I will get to in a little while because some of the breweries were in Jenna territory. So apparently the gang made so much money during the bootlegging enterprises that even the lowest gang members drove around or were chauffeured around in Rolls Royces. Like they're, they were so rich. I'm gonna get to that more in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, so by 1923, the gang was raking in millions of untaxed dollars from bootlegging and the federal government estimated their gross revenues through January of 1926 to be $15 million from, from brewing beer alone. So like not taking into account rum running or anything like that. And that would be about $2 million a year in profit. So theirishmob.com, which is a website, <laughs> says that Drugan, Drugan? I think I'm, actually I'm switching. I'm going with Drugan. I like Drugan better. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. However your name was supposed to be pronounced. I'm sure you're dead. Um, <laughs> bought a home on Lake Zurich and a winter estate in Florida. And this was one of my favorites. I had to quote it directly uh, for you to get a sense of his lifestyle. He had a swimming pool, but couldn't swim. A tennis course, but didn't play the game. Dairy cattle, which he admitted scared him. <laughs> Sheep and swine in his pastures. He owned a thoroughbred racing stable and raced his horses at Chicago's tracks. The horses draped in his family's ancient Celtic color scheme. One time, when he was ruled off of the turf, turf at one track for fixing the race, Drugan pointed his gun on the officials and promised to kill them. All of them, then and there, if they didn't change their ruling. They changed their ruling. So he had, like, all this shit, like a pool and a tennis court, even though he didn't even need them because he didn't use them. I just... Owning cattle was considered, <laughs> like, the luxury lifestyle, like... He was scared of them, though. Oh, no. oh he's got cows. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Um, however, their bootlegging ways would catch up to them. And in 1924, a federal judge would issue injunctions to close their breweries. But this happened after Drugan and Lake were already both sentenced to a year at Cook County Jail by Judge James Wilkerson for contempt of court. Um, and this was because they refused to answer questions regarding their business dealings. And this is where the story gets really exciting for me. <laughs> okay. So, oh, wait, no. I have one more fact before we get to the good part. So apparently Lake appealed this decision to the President of the United States. Oh. Yeah. Which, like, <laughs> it seems like such a weird power move. Like, did he know the president? Like, <laughs> yeah. why would the president care? Anyway, he didn't help. He, okay. they, went to, they went to jail. So, jail was not that bad for them. Uh, for one, they were allowed to come and go as they pleased. Oh. Yep. Cool. Uh, they were allowed to turn their prison cells into their work offices. Um, and they would apparently wear silk PJs and robes during the day before then changing into their evening suits and getting picked up by chauffeurs to go out on the town. Sometimes they would stay out all night partying. And this was all brought for $20,000 bribe to Sheriff Peter Hoffman and Prison Warden Wesley Westbrook. I mean, I'd go to jail if that's what it was like. <laughs> that's cheaper than New York City rent. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another quote from the Irish, irishmob.com. Uh, Drugan would sometimes dine at his own home while Frankie Lake would be seen at nice restaurants with a beautiful woman named Carrie, who was, I guess, his mistress. If they didn't feel like going out, their food would be brought in from their favorite restaurants. If they didn't want to go to their offices, they could use their private phones in their cells and have their secretaries come to them. And just to elaborate, Drugan's... But like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Drugan's home that he would go visit was with his wife, so he'd get to go like hang out with his wife, and it was described as a plush duplex apartment on the Gold Coast. Like, how do we not know these names? That's what I'm saying. How is there not more information? Like, this is How is there wild. not a TV show about these two men? I was like, this can't be real. I was Because at first I was reading it on irishmob.com, and I was like, is this, is this website real? Is this is the onion. And then I, like, started reading other sources, include, like, including valid sources, and I was like, oh, my God, this is real. This really happened. How? How? That's crazy. Um... So apparently a ledger would later be found detailing that they had been labeled as dental trips. Like they just had gone on a shit ton of dental trips was, was the reasoning. It's not true. Um, but a reporter would eventually visit the jail because he suspected that Lake and Drugan were connected to the murder of a rival bootlegger. And I guess he annoyed Drugan who ended up punching him in the face. So as revenge, he exposed what was happening in the prison. Oh. Uh, and then not only that, but a grand jury also looking into the same murder um, visited the prison while Lake and Drugan were out. And they were like, oh, they're out? <laughs> like, what the they're at the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they just have really bad teeth. Sorry. Together. <laughs> <laughs> they're inseparable, so their teeth have the same problems. <laughs> they have to hold each other's hand when the... <laughs> it just works. <laughs> so the Chicago American newspaper wrote this about Drugan after he was exposed. 
He lay, he lay luxuriously in the bed with his purple silk pajamas, a reading lamp above his pillow, and a half dozen books on his lacquered table beside the bed. Morocco slippers and several pairs of patent leather pumps hung on trees under the bed. Uh, like that that was it's his like jail luxurious. Yeah, yeah. Um but after it was exposed it seems like really not much happened to them in response. Uh but the two men that they bribed with the twenty K did get punished. So Sheriff Hoffman was fined two thousand five hundred dollars and got thirty days in jail. Meh worth um, it. <laughs> And Warden Westbrook got four months. So after their release from prison in 1925, again, I guess they just didn't get punished for, like, having a luxury life in prison. So, like, this is, like, the middle of Prohibition. Yeah. And they're some of the biggest bootleggers. So they just ran their business. Yeah. Like, yeah. From- uh, <laughs> so they joined into another agreement with Al Capone where they would give him 40% of their profits for protection against their rivals, the Reagan cults, who I mentioned at the top. Um, Drugan and Lake were convicted of tax evasion in 1932, and the Valley Gang became absorbed into the Chicago outfit by the end of Prohibition. Um, and apparently they served as, like, leading enforcers of, of the outfit. Um, many people claimed that Capone's treatment of the Valley Gang showed that he took good care of gangsters of any ethnic background, as long as they joined him willingly. Um, and I couldn't find much else about them after their luxurious stint in prison, um, but I did find out that don't worry, the gang members, including our friend Terry Drugan, retired extremely wealthy as a millionaire many times over. Oh, I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad to hear. Uh, so my sources for that section um, were Al Capone's Beer Wars by John J. Binder. Thank you, Laura, for lending that to me. Uh, TheIrishMob.com, like I mentioned, a blog post um at another blog, not the crime scenes one, but it was called mafiasum.blogspot.com and Wikipedia. Excellent. We're gonna go to the circus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gonna get um, some popcorn, see some clowns. There were some clowns. <laughs> um, we, I know I, we, not we, I. I am gonna tell you about the circus cafe gang or the circus gang, which was another ally of the Chicago outfit. It's like, we, I get to make up some stuff to throw in. <laughs> yes. Learn to juggle. Um, okay. I'm enough circus puns. <laughs> okay. Cause they actually were terrible. Okay. But, um, okay. So the circus cafe gang is the lone Chicago outfit alliance that served North side Chicago. So we've talked about the North side gang being on the, the north side of Chicago, yeah, clearly, self-explanatory. And the, you know, the Chicago outfit ruled south and west Chicago, but they did have this one alliance with the circus gang in the north. Oh, I feel like that's like uh, it's dangerous, like it, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it is. However, because they were in the north, they actually had a, like a really important kind of location position for. Al Capone and yeah, the outfit. I'd imagine. Uh, the circus gang was considered a recruiting and training arm of the Chicago outfit, but mm-hmm. most importantly, they were believed to be the um, the armorers and the stored weaponry for the mob. Okay. So hiding those Tommy guns. Yeah. At 
1857 West North Avenue sat Circus Cafe. And it was here at the Circus Cafe, the Circus Gang had their headquarters. So appropriately named. And what it, it seems like from my research is that the Circus Gang operated in that section of Chicago, but they really were kind of absorbed completely by the outfit. Like Al Capone had control, even though they had their own set of bosses. Um, they really kind of provided drivers, hitmen, and strong arms that would start in the circus gang and mm -hmm. move their way up the ranks, eventually joining the outfit and moving to other parts of Chicago. Okay. And that's really what their, their like whole shtick was. And story after story that I've read about their members, um, which some of them go on to become quite famous in the Chicago outfit, um, start in the circus gang as, you know, taking jobs as hitmen, driving getaway cars for robberies, providing alibis for some of the other crimes. Mm -hmm. You could just start in the circus gang and then learn how to become a no big criminal. time mobster. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> another thing I found in my research that I haven't seen in like my research for other episodes was this term called Chicago amnesia. Hmm. And so basically what ha would happen is if a crime had been committed somewhere and there had been a witness uh, and that witness had gone to the police and testified, or not testified, but like given evidence mm -hmm. that they could identify whoever was involved in whatever the crime had been. Mm -hmm. They might have a visit from a member of the circus gang and then they would develop Chicago amnesia and they ah. could no longer testify so they were used as like strong arms and mm -hmm. coercion and robbery. Like they were literally just like the the do it all men for Capone. Right. <clears throat> okay. And then there's a lot of things I can't talk about yet involving the circus gang because mm. most notably their claim to fame deals a lot with the Valentine's Day, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, mm -hmm. which we have a future episode about. So I don't want to give away that entire event because right. it, it's so crucial to understanding like the big wars between the North and South Side gangs. But the circus gang allegedly provides all the weaponry for that event. Mm -hmm. um, and they are also discovered to have not only provided weaponry, but also some of the actual men involved in the massacre and also in the cover up or cleanup of like the getaway car and things like that. So when we get to that episode, we're going to come back to some of these men that I'm about to explain. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to give away too much of that right. ordeal but they are very involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre mm -hmm. because of their location and they could easily know what was happening with the Northside Gang which right. becomes important for the that event. Yeah. Okay. So here are some of the big hitters of the Circus Gang. These are like the men we need to know. Okay. Number one. We've heard about him before. We've talked about him before on the podcast, but unrelated to season two 
is our friend Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Machine Gun Jack, mm. the hottie. Yes. <laughs> so Vanessa covered Jack's story during season one when we did our Chicago Bars episode. And she told the story about the Green Mill, which was a favorite hangout of Al Capone. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jack McGurn, he ran the Green Mill and he was the head of security for Capone for many years. But he got his start in the circus gang. Interesting. Yes. The For those of you who don't remember, the Green Mill is where Capone would go in and they would like save <laughs> his booth for him and play his like favorite song. And that's how Laura became the Queen of Queens because she yes. decided... She's going to find a bar that did that for I'm going to find a bar that will do that for me. I haven't done it because of quarantine, but it will happen. 2021 is my year. Don't say that. Don't jinx, don't jinx it. Let me knock on wood somewhere. Oh, wood. Um, okay. But so just a little bit about Jack McGurn, and I didn't do a whole lot about him because we have that episode if you want to know more about him. But he was an athlete he was a boxer and he the story is that he allegedly quit his boxing career shortly after his father was killed mm -hmm. and i don't remember this you might have mentioned it but we didn't have all of this background insight to chicago at the time but his father was killed by a black hand gang oh wow no i don't think i said that because i probably was like what's the black hand gang <laughs> yeah and so kind of in revenge he decided to get out of the boxing business and that's mm -hmm. how he got involved in gang activity was for like the revenge yeah and then he just ended up working his way up because he had that body or that boxing background he was quite he strong. had that body <laughs> He probably had a body too. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure I said it in, in my episode, but I like looked at a picture of him and I was like, ooh, he's he's attractive. <laughs> anyway, continue. But because he had that boxing background, he um, worked his way up from... <laughs> Sorry. He's still thinking about his body, all right? <laughs> Oh, he was a horrible person. <laughs> so his strength is what caught Capone's attention, and he moved up quite um, quickly in the ranks and became extremely important to Al Capone um, as part of like his head of security. But while he moved from the circus game <laughs> to... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's one of those things where I can't stop. <laughs> All right. Ooh. Okay. While he moved up from the circus gang to Al Capone's private security, he was still quite loyal to the circus gang. He um, would give back a lot to them and was always recruiting from them and bringing young kids from the circus gang into the Chicago outfit to kind of, I guess, better their mob life. Vanessa is still laughing. She's like, I sometimes get into these bits where I can't stop. I'm sorry. Uh, but so that's where he got his start. It's like the uninhibited <laughs> island. <laughs> this is season two's version. Deep breath in. Deep breath in. Okay. Okay. So the next player I want to talk about, and I couldn't find a ton about him except that he was the leader of the circus gang for many years. His name was Claude Screwy Maddox. 
What a screwy guy. I know. Um, in the circus. <laughs> Claude was born in 1892 in St. Louis, Missouri. And he actually started his criminal life in a separate gang in St. Louis known as Egan's Rats, which <laughs> I've never heard Whoa. of. And so I looked into them a little bit. And I, I, this just happens to me almost every episode. I end up down, like, this spiral of, like, I, I was searching St. Louis. Yeah. Like gang life uh-huh. um, but so a little bit about Egan's Rats they were an organized gang that ran in St. Louis for over 35 years and during those 35 years they were bootleggers labor sluggers voter intimidators armed robbers and murderers and so what happens is that Claude Maddox um forms this relationship with the the Chicago outfit mm-hmm. and they bring him from St. Louis to Chicago and they give him like they have him run the circus gang. Okay. Um and I feel like his name like <laughs> sounds familiar. Like I may have come across his name somewhere. I know but there's not a ton of info about yeah. him. Like I don't know how he got acquainted with the Chicago outfit except I believe it's through the bootlegging because we've talked about the beer running Uh and like breweries opening all across the Midwest and St. Louis being a big beer hub. So I think between his connections in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and like him already being a part of Egan's Rats, like Capone wanted him in Chicago to have that connection to St. Louis and Chicago. And so that's kind of the role he played. He ran the circus gang. But he also was that connection to other parts of the Midwest, okay. more specifically St. Louis. And it is assumed that he plays a very large role in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, or it's rumored um, mm-hmm. that he plays, but I, I'm, again, not going to spoil it. Okay, the next man is Anthony Tough Tony Capizio. Tough Tony. Tough Tony. Uh, he was born in 1903, again, another leader of the circus gang or part owner of the circus cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, he, on the other hand, was a bank robber and a hitman. Um, and that was, like, his job. And another thing, I guess I didn't realize too much until this episode when I was doing the research on these guys, was that a lot of these men who were hitmen weren't hitmen in their city, right? Like, they didn't take out people in Chicago. Mm -hmm. They would use their connections and go to other cities so that no one could identify them, which is why we've come across Frankie Yale. I was going to say, Frankie Yale. To Chicago. From New York. From New York, because they could come in, do their job, and leave. Right. And no one was any wiser. And so that's what I'm finding is, like, these men provided that mm-hmm. for the Chicago outfit. They would go and provide these hits in other cities. That makes sense. And then come back. Because you got to think, I was like, if, if the outfit had so many hitmen, why did they keep bringing Frankie Yale in? Um, you know, because Frankie was suspected of Colosimo and of O'Banion, which I'm not sure if we mentioned, but... Um, not yet, but we will. <laughs> I don't remember if I said it in my episode about oh. O'Banion, but um, but I was I was wondering. I was like, if they have so many hitmen, why do they keep bringing this guy in? But, that but that's makes sense. why. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I like came to that when I was realizing. 
Um, and so Tough Tony is connected to many gangs outside of Chicago, and he did a lot of the hits across the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Whenever someone um, did the Chicago outfit wrong, Tough Tony was often sent to take care of them. Yeah. And then uh, one very tiny fact I found on one website about Tough Tony, and I thought it was so strange I had to include it. He was in charge of promoting Al Capone's charity work. (laughs) So nice. So like, hitman by day. Charity worker by night. Charity work promoter by night. I guess it'd be the opposite, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta do that charity work at night. (laughs) Um, And then this is one, I had to talk about how he got his nickname. So this is like the only thing I'm going to mention about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Because he actually gets his nickname after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Before that, he's just Tony. Um, (laughs) Just plain Tony. (laughs) But he becomes tough Tony because after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, um, they have to get rid of the getaway car. Mm -hmm. And um, the circus gang is involved in that aspect. Specifically, tough Tony is involved of cutting up the getaway car. Mm -hmm. And it's while he is... They keep saying dismembering the car with a blowtorch. He hits the gas can and he ends up not only, he, it ends up exploding and he ended up like fully burning himself. Holy crap. And setting the entire structure that he was dismembering this car in, mm-hmm. which was a garage, on fire, which is how they found it and how they were able to tie back so many of the Chicago outfit later oh, wow. on to this event that we're going to go more into detail later but he he like leaves he's burned he goes to the nearby hospital and while they're trying to treat him he realizes that the explosion is going to alert the police so he ends up leaving the hospital and going back to try and stop the fire but like gets caught but anyway all of this leads to his while nickname burnt yes mm-hmm. all of this leads to his nickname of tough tony because he like because he was tough because he was tough but we're gonna talk more about him when we get to that episode on the same valentine's day massacre but i just thought it was an interesting tidbit yes. that like fit into this part okay um the next thing i want to talk about is another guy and this story i'm sorry is a little bit longer than the other ones because i am obsessed with this next man okay his life story is fascinating okay and i've never heard of him before okay and i don't know why we know capone's name and we don't know this guy's name but this is another tony okay. um anthony joe batters a cardio okay and he was born april 28th 1906 in chicago he's raised by italian immigrants um and by 1920, he's 14 years old, definitely not going down the school academic route. Mm-hmm. He drops out of school and he gets a job as a flower delivery boy and a grocery clerk. And those are the only two legal jobs he'll ever have his entire life okay. as flower delivery boy. Okay. <laughs> so with this job, his criminal life begins because he gets arrested multiple times for disorderly conduct while hanging out in front of a local pool hall Mm -hmm. owned by one Al Capone. 
Okay. Um, which is where his antics caught Capone's eye. I feel like that's how it worked back then. Yeah. Like if you had to, if you got the attention of a mobster and mm-hmm. then they invited you to join their game. Yeah. So he does that. He catches the eye of Capone. Capone, because he's so young and inexperienced, doesn't bring him to the outfit, but gives him to the circus gang. Mm-hmm. So he joins the circus gang. Um, gives him like a gift. Yeah. <laughs> and he go. becomes a big, um, a, a like the protege for Jack McGurn. Okay. Machine gun you know, with the body. With hottie with the body. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he... Also plays a big part in St. Valentine's Day Massacre and is known for some very famous assassinations that I can't talk about right now because I don't want to give up future episodes, but we will get there. Come back yes. to Joe Batters later. Okay. But um I wish you could see the look of <laughs> Glee on Lord's right now. She loves this guy. I do. <laughs> uh, let's talk about his nickname. So Joe Batters, it comes from him beating the shit out of someone with a baseball bat while Capone watched. And Capone was like, that guy's like Joe Batters. And I don't know who Joe Batters is, but like he gave him that nickname. Capone gave him his nickname. Because he, he was just sitting back watching him beat some of... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Seems so, normal. yeah, he... Like, and... It's hard to explain because during Prohibition, this kid is so young, uh-huh. he doesn't play a big part in the circus gang, of like the bootlegging and all of this. Mm-hmm. His story really, really takes off in like the 1930s. Okay. Okay. So I do want to talk about it because I don't think we're going to go that far with the Chicago outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think we will, but I'm still going to tell you now. Okay. Um, okay. So, later in the 1930s, and this is, like, post-Prohibition and post-this, he was ordered to savagely beat and murder all former associates of Al Capone who had been traitors to the outfit and who had, like, gone to the police with info that, like, eventually led to, like, Capone's downfall. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, Capone trusted... Tony Accardio so much that, like, this is the man he went to seek revenge. Like, had seek revenge on all of his traitors. Right. Which I thought was fascinating. Like, Capone very much trusted this man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how his story... He, okay. Sorry. I'm, like, stumbling because I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I do... What happens, we all know kind of Capone does eventually fall, and we will tell that story later. But in the 1940s, after Capone has no longer, like, any part of the Chicago outfit, um, Tony Accardio ends up becoming the boss of the Chicago outfit in the 1940s. And it's under his leadership in the 1940s that the outfit moves from bootlegging because that's not not needed yeah um and they move into the slot and vending machine as well as counterfeit cigarette and liquor tax stamp business interesting okay they also expand into narcotics smuggling i know and one thing that he's most famous for doing um is placing slot machines in gas stations restaurants and bars 
throughout the entire like outfits territory. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's no longer just Chicago. They've expanded um, most famously into Las Vegas. Mm. Um, Acardio is responsible for taking the influence over gaming away from the five families of New York City and putting it in control of the outfit in Las Vegas. Interesting. Yes. Which, like, how do we not know this guy's name? No. Like, he had major power. It's crazy. There's so many people that we come across that I think that about. I'm like, yeah. what? Um, in Las Vegas, uh, all legal Las Vegas casinos used his slot machines. He had that power. Wow. Yes. And then in places like Kansas and Oklahoma, where they had bans on alcohol sales or dry days Mm -hmm. and like stricter laws still in like the 40s and 50s Mm -hmm. they would introduce bootlegged alcohol like they just had control of like the whole midwest and like we don't when we think of mobsters and things like that we don't think of the 40s and 50s so much everyone very much focuses on like the 1920s but he got his start as a teenager with the circus gang, and he ends up becoming the boss of the Chicago outfit 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I really, like, I, when I think about, like, this style of, like, mobs and organized crime, I, I like, basically only think of Al Capone's period, right? Like, I, it magically stops after that, I, but it, it does, does not. not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, to reduce his exposure to legal prosecution um he did get rid of things like labor racketeering and extortion Mm -hmm. uh, because that just catches the eye of the fbi yeah um and he also converted all of the illegal brothels into like official call girl services so they were operating legally um where you legally could have call girl services. Mm-hmm. Um, the result of all of this ended up being really the golden era for the Chicago outfit. Not so much when Al Capone was in charge. Yes. They made more money under his leadership than they did under Chicago or Capone's leadership. That's wild. I know. So with all of that, obviously the IRS and the FBI and everyone mm-hmm. wanted to get him like they were after him to bring down the outfit um so the irs would probe his bank accounts and in 1960 he was indicted for tax evasion he was sentenced to six years in prison and fined fifteen thousand dollars however uh the conviction was overturned because they said that there was um prejudice media coverage that aired during his trial and so he never served any time for tax evasion or any of the crimes he had done his entire life. Hmm. Um, he very soon retired and could have gone on to just live in quiet peace. However, that's not what happens. The government doesn't give up. They go after him for years and mm-hmm. years. He has brought charges against. He went to the Senate so many times and had to like go under questioning Mm -hmm. that he invoked the fifth amendment over 172 times denying any role with the chicago outfit damn yeah so he admitted to having friendships with many mob leaders but he said i have no control over anyone and he died may 27th of 1992 from heart and lung disease after nearly eight decades being a part of the Chicago outfit. 
It's crazy. That is crazy. And after eight decades, he never once served. He only served one night in jail. Wow. He like was never charged with anything. Good for him. So I just found him super fast. I'm I, like I want to read more about him because I'm I skipped over a ton even though I didn't stop talking. Um, so my sources for this part were thecrimemuseum.org and myalcaponemuseum.com and a little bit of the People's Source. <laughs> okay, so we've mentioned the Jenna brothers a couple of times so far. Um, and I even talked about them for a bit in our gin episode last season, which was episode 10. I like looked oh. back. I was like, what episode was it? 10. <laughs> that feels so long ago. Yeah. Um, but as a refresher, the Jenna brothers were six brothers who operated um, in the Taylor Street section of Chicago, which was known as Little Sicily. Um, and they were their main years of operation were from 1921 through 1925. Makes sense. Yes. So the names of the brothers, and I remember we kind of made fun of this in episode 10, but in general, they were nicknamed as the Terrible Jennas. And then some of them had nicknames and some of them didn't. So there was Bloody Angelo, scary, Antonio the Gentleman, Mike the Devil, and then Peter, Sam, and Vincenzo. I do remember this <laughs> And Vincenzo went by James or Jim. Oh, that's normal. <laughs> Not Vinny. Like, why would you go by Vinny? And, like, if you're going to go with a nickname, why did you just change it to, like, Jim? Jim. <laughs> no offense you have to bloody, all the Jims. <laughs> bloody Angelo, the Gentleman, the Devil, and Jim. So the Jenna brothers all emigrated to Chicago between 1906 and 1914 from Sicily. And they were like, came to America saying that they were farmhands, but they very promptly went to work for the black hand extortionist. Oh. You know, that's what one does when they come to America. You need a job. <laughs> farmhands to extortionist. So I kind of want to talk about like their roles within the organization so vincenzo or jim <laughs> was apparently like kind of the leader of them all like he was the one that was like the brains behind it although i did see bloody angelo also called the leader sometimes um and i also read that he was kind of like the muscle of the group that makes sense you don't bloody. get the name bloody yeah yeah nothing um, Sam was the family fixer, uh, and he handled, like, the authorities and all of their political connections. Mike the Devil, unsurprisingly, was, like, the rowdy one of the bunch, and, like, to kind of reel him in, they gave him a lot of lower-level tasks, uh, often related to violence. Uh, Antonio, or Tony the Gentleman, remained kind of aloof from all the dirty work. He actually was a qualified building contractor and architect, and he owned legitimate businesses and like liked to say that he wasn't involved with the gang work, but like when his family needed him, he'd be there. He's like that brother that reluctantly helps bury the yeah, body. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the only thing I could find about Pete was that he ran a saloon. <laughs> Good old Pete. I, I like Pete best. <laughs> Um, so like the Valley Gang, the Jenna brothers had the Maxwell police in their pockets, kind of like I had mentioned when I talked about the Valley Gang, that they did operate in the Jenna territory. So uh, it was noted that the police would regularly line up in front of the Jenna headquarters, which was a warehouse located at 1022 West Taylor. 
uh, and the warehouse was disguised as an olive and cheese importing business. But the police would line up there to collect their payoff money. Like, oh. they would just form a line outside of this warehouse, casually. They just really liked olives. <laughs> and cheese. Yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> um, and their headquarters were actually jokingly referred to as, as the police station. Oh, wow. Because police were there so often. Uh, the Jenna brothers actually paid over $8,000 per month in bribes to over 300 officers. In return, the officers would often escort the Jenna brothers' alcohol shipments so that they weren't interfered with. Wow. Yeah. You know. That's power. A good bond. Yeah. Between gangsters and police. So, when the Jenna brothers first started out in the bootlegging business, they started out pretty small by peddling, peddling wine along Taylor Street, but they soon expanded and learned better ways to make money off of illegal alcohol. So during Prohibition, the Jenna brothers apparently obtained a federal license to manufacture industrial alcohol, and they would then sell that illegally as drinking alcohol. Oh. Yes. Cool. Seems, seems legit, but their actual main source of illegal alcohol was the cottage industry that they set up under the Union Siciliana and uh, alcohol distilling. And I did mention the Union Siciliana in the episode about O'Banion, uh, along with the head, Mike Merlot, which <laughs> I found funny then that it, it was a wine, wine name. Uh, but he was very close with the Jenna brothers and was the one who tried to talk them out of the assassin assassination of O'Banion. Uh, and that's where I had mentioned him. But just so you guys have some context, the Union Siciliana was a Sicilian-American organization rumored to control much of the Italian vote within the United States during the early 20th century. Uh, and the Jenna brothers' ties to the organization were so deep that after Merlot died in 1924, Angelo would go on to replace him as the head of this organ Sicilian organization. It was through this organization that the Jenna brothers would target their fellow Italian immigrants and ask them, or make them probably, operate stills in their own homes to create bathtub gin which is why I talked about them in our gin episode. Mm. So according to the Mom Museum, the Jenna brothers would provide people with stills or alky cookers, uh, as well as corn sugar and yeast to make the alcohol. The alcohol would then be picked up on a weekly basis, basis by their, the bootleggers that worked for them. And they apparently had like hundreds of people that extended through the city of Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, and even as far as Gary, Indiana doing this. And again, they were all fellow Italian immigrants. It's like a second hustle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, the immigrants that were doing this were usually from low income homes and they like really needed the extra money that the weekly salary provided. So according to medium.com, the salary was $15 a week. But according to my Al Capone Museum, and I think the Chicago Crime Scenes Project, I didn't write it down, but they both said it was $15 a day. Oh. Um, and they said that the reason for that was because these alky cookie cookers, cookies, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> these alky cookers would often overheat and explode, killing or injuring the workers. And the, explosion, the explosions would basically spit out pieces of shrapnel and then the volatile alcohol. So because of those dangers is why it was such a, they paid such a high price. But even though they 
paid the salary that was great for these low-income houses, it was like pocket change to them. Like it didn't really affect their earnings. Um, the model actually worked out really well from them and their gross revenues from pure alcohol were estimated at 4.2 million uh, with their profits at 1.8 million a year. And by 1924, so just a couple years into this business, they had a combined wealth of $5 million, wow. which back then I'm sure was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but just to be clear, the alcohol he produced wasn't always super quality, which I feel like we've talked about in the past when talking about bathtub gin and these homemade alcohols. Uh, in fact, in police raids that happened years later, they found dead rats and other impurities in the liquor barrels that were stored at the Jenner Brother warehouses. And um, I believe you talked about this in the Christmas episode, but that kind of alcohol would lead to like people going blind and to deaths and alcohol poisonings. Well, and there's no guarantee like someone could give you instructions for making something and me like a recipe. Right. And it's going to look different or taste different right. because we're going to cook it separately. Our ovens are different. Mm -hmm. So... Every still, every home is going to produce slightly different Yeah, and gin. I, I actually read, I can't forget, I can't remember which source it was, but they would add dyes to their alcohol and, like, flavorings to make it seem like it was whiskey, even though it had, like, just been produced in someone's bathtub and was, like, clearly not, like, aged, you know, whiskey the way it should be uh, to fool like people. So. Throw some bark in there to yeah. color it. <laughs> Um, so at some point, the Jenna brothers began to produce distilled liquors or spirits for Torrio and Capone. Uh, Torrio and Capone also had close ties to the Union Siciliana and to Mike Merlot, despite the fact that they weren't Sicilian themselves. Um, and by 1923, the Jennas had become the main source of distilled spirits sold by the outfit, which seems like weird since their stuff wasn't always super kosher, but... Maybe they gave them the best, the best of their of their stuff. Right. Uh, and they also s sold the extra alcohol at cut rate prices outside of their territory. And that is what kind of started to cause a clash with the North Side Gang, uh, which I think I, again, mentioned back in O'Banion's episode. But basically, O'Banion was, like, annoyed at them for kind of encroaching on his territory, and he went to Johnny Torrio, but Torrio backed up the Jenna brothers. So, again, I don't want to get too much into the gang wars to come because we'll be discussing that more in depth in future episodes. Um, but as I touched on in the other episode, in retaliation to this, O'Banion began to steal from the Jenna brothers' trucks, and he also got into kind of, like, an argument with Angelo for owing a ton of money to the ship, which was a speakeasy that he owned with Torio. And that is what would kind of eventually lead to the assassination of O'Banion, which involved two of the Jenna brothers' main hitmen named John Scalisi and Albert Ansel Anselmi? Anselmi? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, but the reason, the only reason I wanted to mention their names was because their nickname was the Murder Twins. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Halloween costume. I know, uh, because they were the Jenna Brothers' two top killers. So, 
The Jenna brothers are pretty involved in the gang wars, especially towards the beginning. I had to jump over some of their stories and jump past some of these assassination attempts that we're going to talk about in the future. But I did want to kind of talk about where they ended up. So the first one to go, and by go I mean be killed, was <laughs> Bloody Angelo. Um, he was on his way to close a new house for him and his wife, so sweet, um, when he was shot to death by shotguns. Um, and it was done by Northsiders. For a second, shotguns could be a nickname. He was shot by shotguns. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Actual shotguns were used to kill him. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it was thought to be in retaliation for Dino Banyan's assassination or payback for the murder of another man named Paul Lab Labriola, yep. uh, who was the henchman of an Irish alderman named John Powers. Um, who they had had conflict with, or it could have been for both. No one really knows for sure what his assassination was for. And as I noted, he had become the head of the Union Siciliana. So even though he was a buddy of Capone, Capone took advantage of that, and he um, installed one of his men, Tony Lombardo, as president of the Union Siciliana. So next... Uh, Again, in a gang war association attempt that I want to avoid talking about, Mike the Devil was shot in the thigh, severing an artery, and he bled to death in a nearby basement. That's um, a clever way of not telling us what big event this happens in. <laughs> <laughs> but he dies. He dies. <laughs> he bled to death. And then Mike the Devil... Oh, no, that was him. Mike the Devil. And then the last one to get assassinated was Antonio Jenna. Um, he became the victim of a handshake death where an acquaintance like shook his hand and then two other men opened fire. Mm. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, in the future. But the remaining three brothers fled Chicago. Um, James, Vincenzo, whatever he wants Jim. to be, whatever he wants to be called, uh, would attempt to return to Chicago and take back Little Sicily. But an assassination attempt was made on him which killed one of his bodyguards and wounded two others. So he decided he was just going to leave again and rejoin his brothers in Italy. Um, so after three of the brothers were killed and three fled Chicago, the gang kind of fell apart and got absorbed into the Chicago outfit. But as I alluded to, we will talk about the Jenna brothers again because they did play a role in the gang wars to come. Um, as noted by the Chicago Crime Scene Project, the Jennas were the most crucial element in the liquor supply chain, and control over their operations was largely the source of the bloody Chicago beer wars of the 1920s. Oh. So, my sources were Al Capone's Beer Wars Again by John J. Binder, um, a Medium.com article called Capone's Associates, the Terrible Jennas by Andrew Ward, the Mob Museum, and then the Chicago Crime Scenes Project, and... A little bit of Wikipedia again. Sorry, but I'm not. <laughs> the last alliance I'm going to talk about is a gang known as the 42 Gang. Okay. And I find it interesting because we did not plan this, but I've noticed while we were recording, the two gangs you talked about were like true alliances. They were like legit gangs mm -hmm. that created alcohol that's helped supply the Chicago outfit. Mm -hmm. And then my two alliance gangs were like 
farm gangs that just supplied people, people <laughs> to the outfit. That is interesting. The 42 gang is, again, it's going to be another one of those, like, it's like up-and-comers mm-hmm. who move up. Okay. Okay. So, the 42 gang starts in the year 1925, so much later than a lot of the other gangs we've mentioned, mm-hmm. and it actually starts with 24 members, some as young as nine years old. Wow. Yes. Babies. And so, these boys supposedly named their gang 42 after Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, which had 41 people. But they claimed they were one better, so they named themselves the 42 Gang. Um, So they're kids. They're children. Um, And like we've mentioned this season, a lot of children that joined gangs in Chicago came from these lower class neighborhoods like Little Hell. Right. Um, There's another similar neighborhood called The Patch. Um, And so so most of... These boys in the 42 gang come from these two neighborhoods. Okay. And from the beginning, they start doing tiny crimes, as they all do. Mm -hmm. Vandalism, petty thefts, car stripping, stealing of horse carts and horses. Um, They would, like, burgle cigarette stores or cigar stores. Um, And then it, it moves on quite suddenly to staging armed holdups. I'm like, well, that's a little different than like taking the hubcaps off or of someone. Or like pickpocketing yeah. someone or, yeah. Um, so, but they were known for being quite violent, even though they were like a boy street gang. And it's this violence that again, catches the eyes of some of the Chicago outfit. And they start to kind of, you know, watch these boys and see what they're doing. And it was also noted that the 42ers, as they're called. Okay. Because it's the 42 gang. Mm-hmm. The 42ers, most of their crimes were committed to have pocket money. And they wanted the pocket money so that they could then go to the speakeasies and brothels that were owned by the Chicago outfit. Like, these were kids not really trying to make a life. I say kids, meaning, you know, a lot of teenagers, young 20s. Like, they weren't, like, lifelong criminals who were actually trying to be, like, Capone and buy multi-million dollar houses. Right. They were doing these crimes to have pocket money so they could go and go to a brothel. Yeah. (laughs) And so that is where they hung out. They hung out in the um, Red District or the Levee. They hung out at the pool halls and gambling halls owned by the outfit. Mm. And this is where they catch the eye of these higher ups in the Chicago outfit. Um, And just like with the circus gang, the outfit would sometimes just like grab one of the kids, hire them to do a job, like Mm. be a beer runner or a truck driver. But they never formed a full alliance with these boys because it was risky. It was risky to have young kids. It was risky because because they were kids, they always didn't think about the consequences before they might take out a gun and shoot someone. Yeah. Yeah, So they never were like a full formed like alliance with the Chicago outfit. They really were just kind of hired members for Mm -hmm. many years until one particular member 
stands out amongst the rest of the 42ers. And his name is Sam Momo Giancana. Momo? Momo. Um, and Giancana, which I think I'm saying it right. I am I mean, I butchered a bunch of names. I know, so. but I feel like this is another one that, like, again, this is a name we should all know. Yeah. And we don't. But he was a very, very skilled wheelman who was very calm under pressure. So he got hired a lot to work for the outfit. And he actually becomes the first official member of the 42 gang to leave the 42ers and join the Chicago outfit. Okay. Um, he becomes a protege of Tony Joe Batters Accardo, who I talked about when I talked about the Circus Gang earlier right. in this episode. And it's under like his instruction that he's able to like lead the way for many of the other 42ers to kind of like become more of that like structured criminal, you know, it's yeah. the organized crime of like we're not just like mm-hmm. doing reckless things. And so that it's because of him that many other of these boys end up joining the outfit. Um, but really quick, I want to talk about Giancara, and I don't have a ton to say I could, but I felt like I didn't want to go on and on and on. Uh-huh. This is another case of like a name becoming much more infamous after the end of Prohibition and after okay. the end of Capone. Um, Giancara actually ends up taking control of the outfit from Tony Accardio. Like, oh. in the 50s. Like, yeah. later, he becomes the boss of the Chicago outfit. Um, so wow. Which, it's just weird yeah. how they it worked out this way when I was researching. And he has some very fascinating history attached to his name. Okay. So, it is claimed that he is responsible for rigging the presidential election of 1960 and getting JFK elected. Oh, shit. That's big. And that the Chicago outfit had a big part of that. Yeah. Um, But then it's also noted he's subsequently somehow involved in the assassination of JFK. So... That's that's change. There's that. Um, His biggest kind of claim to fame with the Chicago outfit, however is he is responsible for expanding the Chicago outfit's reach in gambling and smuggling to huge operations in Panama and Iran. Interesting. Which I didn't even know that that existed, but that is how the outfit laundered their money uh-huh. for most of like the 60s and 70s and who maybe even up till today. They do it out of the country. And Panama happens to be a very big part of that. Mm -hmm. And he, Giancarla, started that relationship when he was in charge of the outfit. However, he is assassinated um, later on in... I I don't know that I wrote the exact date because I was, like, reading so much about it. But he actually... um, gets tapped by the CIA later in life to be a part of the assassination plot of Fidel Castro. Even though the CIA denies it, there's like lots of evidence to support his claim. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it falls through. 
it doesn't happen and he has to go into hiding and he leaves and then when he decides to come back to America and he's about to testify um, he ends up being shot and killed in his home but there's like lots of very weird things tied to this guy's name mm -hmm. um, and he led the Chicago outfit to do some very sketchy things in the 1960s and 70s mm -hmm. um, 1960s mainly but I just thought it was so weird that both of the alliances that I chose like lined up so perfect lined up to be like the later bosses right. of the Chicago outfit and we did like, not plan that we at really all didn't. I know and so I was just doing my story and I was like how is this how did we work this out yeah like, we just literally met. picked two gangs each yeah so I just thought it was fascinating I mean if this was a very tiny gang of like children mm -hmm. but they were like a farm team like, yeah you know they just groomed them from very young to become the eventual heads of the yeah. chicago outfit which i just thought was my mind that not only did you get like the two heads but like you said that you got two feeder groups and i got two like actual alcohol suppliers yeah it's so weird i know but uh so those are the biggest alliances of Al Capone. Yeah. There are so many though. There are. There are many others. There's independent breweries, there's independent brothels, there's smaller I mean, gangs that smaller have much gangs. smaller stories. Um Al Capone did not do it himself. No. This Chicago outfit did not do it themselves. We know those names and they are infamous, but it's because of all these other people that are involved. Right. And I I really can't recommend it enough. If you are even a little bit interested, like Google these gangs we talked about and these men oh, yeah. because there is so much history there mm -hmm. that I, I like. I want to know more. Right. I wanted to keep reading. I mean, some of these people are so fascinating. Like the two eventual leaders of the child that we don't know their names. These two guys that lived the life in prison. Like, I know. I want a movie about that. I know. It's so great. Um, there is actually so. Giancara is in The Irishman from last oh, year. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. He plays one of the, the main Interesting. characters because he went on to yeah. be very famous in like an important. So like I forget who they said played him. I want to say there's also a movie where like he's played by Joe Pesci or something like. Oh, wait. Joe Pesci was in The Irishman. Oh, maybe, I, maybe it is Joe I Pesci. I watched it, but I can't remember... I'm gonna look it up right now. I can't remember what Joe Pesci's character name name was, so maybe it was maybe it was in this movie. Maybe it was. Um, but so it's just there's just so much history tied to the Chicago outfit. He played Russell Buffalino. What what is this guy's name? Giancara, G I A N C A R A. Oh yeah, I got it. I pulled up his uh, people source page. So. When you go to this section on People's Source where it's like, in popular culture, there's like 15 movies he's in. Oh. But so, Al Linnea plays I him. I just got there. Literally <laughs> just got there. You see this? Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, he's even in the movie JFK because like he was a part of yeah. all of that. Um, but yeah, so it, it's just interesting. There's Like Matt Damon's character, and then okay, no, in The Good Shepherd, 
Joe Pesci's character is supposed to, it's like a combination of him and a couple other guys. Because oh. it has to do with the CIA operation. Yeah. And so, like, they couldn't put all the players, but yeah. Joe Pesci's character is like a part combo. him. Yeah. Um, and then um, I, they, they mentioned Matt Damon has a part in it. I don't know. But so he's in, and he's in, like, rap songs. Like, they mention, they drop his name in rap songs um, as, like, being responsible for JFK. Like, there's a line, it's a song called Dope Money. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the line says, bring drama, because Giancana got Kennedy killed. So, like, I it's just fascinating, because I've never heard of him, but, like, clearly he is somewhat well-known and had, yeah. like... Yeah. And there's a whole tie to the NFL. Like, a lot of his family are NFL players. It's very... It's fascinating. Yeah. Please do research, guys, if you want to know more about him. But, um... Yeah. So, that those are the alliances. <laughs> nice. Let's give your sources. I don't know. Did I give my sources? Um, they're actually very similar to my sources for the Circus Gang. I did use the People Source a little bit. Um... And myalcaponemuseum.com and crimemuseum.org. Nice. Yes. Um, and like we said, there are many more alliances. So please. Yeah. Feel and we're going to put up some pictures of these guys. Yes. And maybe some of those movie recommendations that we talked about. So Definitely. make sure you check out our social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And if you have any more interesting information about the people we talked about or about any of the other alliances or just, you know, anything you want to share with us. You can email us at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, next week we'll be going in the opposite direction. We'll be talking about their enemies. Yes. Besides the North Side Gang, who we already talked about. Yeah. <laughs> so technically we're talking about the North Side Gang's alliances. Yes. <laughs> Actually, Laura texted me and was like, are we doing both the Northside Gang's alliances and enemies and the Chicago Outfits alliances and enemies? And I was like, well, wouldn't the Chicago alliances be the enemies and vice versa? You know what? <laughs> it's been a long seven months. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. Cheers.